You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Well, let's open up our Bibles to Daniel. We're almost done. We're almost done with Daniel, and I'm just longing for a New Testament book by this point. <clears throat> I, mean, I love the Old Testament. You know, we, we split 50-50. Uh, it's one book, um, and um, New Testament and Old Testament, but I am ready for a New Testament book at this point. We're in um, the 11th chapter, like you'd open up there, uh, whether you have your Bible with you or your Bible app. And uh, the 11th chapter, as you know, little review here, bring you up to speed, is the last of several visions that Daniel receives throughout, that are recorded throughout the book of Daniel. And uh, this vision in chapter 11 is about the future of his people, the Jewish people, and it also has a section of it that's about the future for all humanity. Many of the prophecies within the vision have been fulfilled, and we We looked at those last week in verses 2 through 35. Other prophecies within this vision remain unfulfilled, and those will be our focus today in verses 36 through 45. Now, all these prophecies, again, by way of reminder, are presented within the historical context of the rise and fall of four ancient empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And many of the prophecies in chapter 11 focus on the third of those four, the Greek Empire. They foretold accurately, we know historically in retrospect, but they foretold what would happen to the Jewish people just after Alexander the Great died. Now, he was was the greatest king of uh, the Greek Empire, and, and after he died, just as the prophecy foretold, his kingdom was divided into four separate kingdoms. It was divided among his four main generals. And two of those kingdoms are highlighted in Daniel 11 because of the rivalry between them over a piece of land between them, and that piece of land is called Israel, or the beautiful land in this prophecy. So you have this northern kingdom, which was the Seleucid Empire based basically in Syria and also went over into Persia. And then you have the Southern Empire, the Ptolemaic Empire, and it was based in what we now know as Egypt, but really comprised all of Northern Africa or Northeastern Africa. And they, they battled for four generations back and forth over what was between them, the beautiful land or Israel. The, the section here about this ends with one particular northern king, the last one mentioned here, named Antiochus Epiphanes. We've talked a lot about him. He's the most famous of all these kings because he is the one who persecuted the Jews most. He is the one who brought about the, the desolation, the abomination of desolation of the Jewish temple in 167 B.C. But he is also and for our context today, presented as a type or a foreshadowing of another future king who will come even more evil, who will persecute the Jewish people just prior to the return of Christ, known as the Antichrist. And we learned a lot about the Antichrist by looking at Antiochus Epiphanes, in verses 21 through 35, we learn there the, Antiochus, the uh, Antichrist, like Antiochus, is going to be incredibly deceptive. 
supernaturally deceptive, that he is going to hate God and hate God's people. But we can learn even more about the Antichrist from the verses that follow, verses 36 through 45. They are not a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. They are actually about the Antichrist, who is known in these verses as the king who does what he pleases. Let's read the first part of the text, and then we'll, we'll start with that. Verse 36, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. We'll find out this is the tribulation. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but he will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He, the Antichrist, will invade many countries in response and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Again, that's Israel. Now, at first glance, when you're reading this, you go, well, this still seems like it's talking about the same king in the prior section, Anto uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? But it's not. And we know that because there are details here, there are facts here that are not historically applicable to Antiochus. They refer to another king, in fact, a very future king from Antiochus. Verse 40 tells us that this king will arise in power at the time of the end. And from history, we know the end did not come at the end of the reign of Antiochus or any other king that followed him. And so this end must be the final end. And that's actually confirmed by the verses that immediately follow this section in chapter 12. At that time, 12.1, at what time? The time of the king in verse 36. Michael, the great prince who protects your people, this is the angel speaking to Daniel, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Again, this is talking about the tribulation. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So at the time of this king who does what he pleases, the time of the end, it will be a, a season or a time of unprecedented, unprecedented distress. The great tribulation, followed by a resurrection of believers to final reward, and then a resurrection of unbelievers to final judgment. So this passage here is definitely referring to the end, the last of the last days. And that's exactly the way that Jesus interpreted it in his end times discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. He actually quotes this verse from Daniel and said its fulfillment would be right before he returns, right before the second coming. So with that in mind then, we understand that verses 21 through 35 are about Antiochus 
And verses 36 through 45 are about a future king that arises in the last days known as the Antichrist. Now, what that means is this. Right here between verse 35 and 36, the prophecy jumps forward at least 2,000 years. In fact, 2,100 years. The, the, the time frame between verse 35 and 36 is at least 2,100 years. Now, this is a prophetic uh, phenomena that we find throughout the Old Testament. We see this where a prophet will be prophesying and right in the middle of sentence, they'll go from Christ's first coming right all the way to Christ's second coming. Remember the, the, uh, the prophet, 2 Peter 2 says, or 1, verse 21 says, the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit used their vocabulary, their intellect, their time, their culture, but also the Holy Spirit spoke things through them that they were not aware of. And so that's what happens here. They jump oftentimes, when you read the Old Testament, from first coming to second coming of Christ. Think about Isaiah 9-6. Christmas is coming up. That's a verse you see on a lot of Christmas cards. You will see it this year, I promise you. And you'll remember this when you look at it. It says, for to us, or unto us, King James, right? A child is born, to us a son is given. That's the first advent. That's the first coming of Christ. He came as a savior. And then it says, what? And the government will be upon his shoulder. Second coming. When he came the first time, he didn't come to be the government. All the Jews were looking forward to that, and that's why they were so disappointed when he died on a Roman cross. He was supposed to take over the Romans. He was supposed to set up his kingdom. The disciples would argue who's going to set on his left and who's going to set on his right in your coming kingdom. Because why? They didn't see in the middle of this verse there was a gap of 2,000 years. So, I say all that to establish there's a gap between verse 35 and verse 36. Verse 36 is about the Antichrist. We've already met him, haven't we? We met him in chapter 7 of Daniel. We met him in chapter 8. We saw him again in chapter 9. In those places, he's referred to, you'll recall, the little horn, the fierce king, the master of intrigue, and the ruler who will come. But he's not only talked about in Daniel and other Old Testament prophecies. The New Testament talks about him too. He is spoken of in 2 Thessalonians. Ooh, that was a glitch. I haven't had one of those in a while. Second Thessalonians. As the lawless one. The lawless one. That's what he's called there. In John's letters, he again is called the Antichrist. In Revelation, he is called the what? The beast. That's his name in Revelation. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at these verses that Daniel's in Daniel here and discover what they reveal about the Antichrist and then why is that so important to you tomorrow morning? Why do you need to know this? Why does God have this in His Word? And there's two comments I'd like to make before I start with this section of prophecy. The first one is this. Understanding Scripture is sometimes hard. You know, Peter said that. Peter said, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he said, it's hard to understand some of the things the Holy Spirit speaks through the Apostle Paul. He said that about Paul. Some scripture is hard to understand. Prophecy is probably the, the hardest to understand. And yet, it's written to us. It's written for us. It's written for our edification. All scripture. Say all scripture. All scripture. It's profitable. 
2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is profitable. This was written to us. This is written for our edification. The book of Daniel, the book of Revelation is written to us for God's purposes. And that means when you go through these, that learning requires effort. It takes work to rightly divide or understand the word of truth. That's what Paul told Timothy. It takes work. We live in a day in which we've been convinced the opposite is true. Everything is one Google search away. Everything is one, I can become an expert on anything, one YouTube video. I can learn it just like that, right? Okay, that's fine with tech, but not with Bible. (laughs) Scripture is not that way. That's why we post a video. I have never done one sermon that I thought you should only listen to once. That's why we put, now we have the audio on Spotify and on iTunes, a podcast. That's why we have the notes. The notes are available on the website. They're available on the church center up. Why? Time is short. And we, you know, we just don't have time to mess around. You know, to give you a little, little truth here, a little truth here, just a crumble here and a crumble here, I'm bringing the bread truck every Sunday. Because we need it. We need to be immersed in His Word. We need to have his, let His Word dwell richly in us, Colossians 3.16 says. So we offer you those things. I think we should follow the example of the disciples. They didn't understand a lot of what Jesus said. He'd be teaching parables. They're going, but you know what they did? And that's okay. That's all right. Yeah. They weren't dismissing him. You know what they were doing? We're going to find out more about this later on. And after the crowds, long after the crowds departed, what did they do? They go up to Jesus. Tell us what you meant by that. Now, what's good about that? That shows a heart that longs for God. A heart that's pursuing God. And there's a blessing in that pursuit. There's a closeness with God that it becomes available to you. Because God sees you're really serious about this thing. So he opens up more to you. But it comes from pursuing. Now, the second thing, this is going to be much shorter. Second point is we cannot understand everything fully. 1 Corinthians 13. Now we know in part... Then we will know in... Okay, so full understanding is for a later date. Amen? We understand in part. And I'm grateful for the part that we can understand and we will continue to grow in understanding. But that should humble us and cause us not to be dogmatic about our understanding of what Scripture says about the last days. There are many things you can be dogmatic about because they are clear. But when it comes to prophecy... Not quite as clear. And so, not quite as dogmatic. Amen? All right. I think I said what I wanted to say. You know what that does? That gives me a little insurance policy. I can actually change my mind about something I'm going to say today. We're all growing, aren't we? All right. The king who does what he pleases, the Antichrist, the first thing you need to know about him, he will seem to be sovereign. Look at what it says in verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. And this means more than just like he's got power. It means more than that. It means he will seem to be like God and sovereign. He is not. 
but he will seem to be. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He'll say unheard of things against the God of gods. He'll be successful until the time of the wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will do what he pleases. He will act as if and seem as if he is sovereign. According to Revelation 13, the Antichrist will be empowered by Satan. He'll be so empowered by Satan that he'll seem to be a god. In fact, we read earlier in our study in Daniel 7 that he'll even go as far as trying to change the set times and the laws that God has decreed. He's going to try to say, change God's set times, God's sovereignly established decrees, decreed times and decreed laws. This is one arrogant dude. But he will be the most powerful, charismatic king or leader the world has ever seen, and people will flock to him uh, and do anything he says. And the only one that will, ever, that will be able to stop him is the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he will be so powerful and seem sovereign, verse 36 says, he'll exalt, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say unheard of things, blasphemies against the one true God, the God of all gods. Furthermore, because of his power and his pseudo-sovereignty, he'll be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. The time of wrath is the tribulation. He'll be successful only because God allows it. Whatever power the Antichrist has, he's allowed to have it by the overriding authority of God to fulfill God's purposes in the last days. There is a leash on Satan and God is holding it, and therefore there's a leash on the Antichrist too. And he'll only be able to do what God allows him to do in, these seven, in this seven-year period. The second thing about the Antichrist is he will exalt himself as God over all other gods. Paul says it like this before we read Daniel. He says, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that's called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now Daniel says it like this, verse 37, he'll show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women. That's literally the desire of women. Nor will he regard any god, but he will exalt himself above them all. Now, so what is that one, the, the one desired by women? You know, here's what you run into through Daniel and Old Testament prophecies. It takes a little digging to try to explain some of these things. There's a number of interpretations. Some believe that when it says here, he... Um, will show no regard for the desire of women means that he'll have no sexual attraction to women. I don't know if that then equates to him being homosexual or what. It doesn't say we're not told. We don't even know if that's it. Others, though, other uh, scholars believe that this phrase refers to the Messiah because in ancient Jewish culture, it was the de desire of every married woman that she would be the one to bring the Messiah into the world, the desire of women. And so it is very possible the one desired by women is indeed a reference to the Messiah, whom the Antichrist would disregard along with all of his ancestral gods. However, although he will disregard all other gods, the third thing about him is he will honor a new god. Now I'll explain this in a minute, but let's read the text. Instead of them, verse 38, he will honor a God of fortresses. The ESV has this better, a God of force. 
a God unknown to his ancestors, he will honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God, and he will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people, will distribute the land at a price. So everyone who goes along with him is going to get a kickback. There's going to be a lot of kicking back. So the Antichrist will exalt himself as a God, but he'll also give honor to a God, a God of force, who will help the Antichrist attack fortresses. So what is or who is this very strong, forceful God? What religion then is this? What is the, the nature of the fortresses he attacks? You know what? We don't know. We could speculate at this point, but I'm just going to say we don't know. However, there are some things that we do know that can help understand this. And they're found in this great chapter of Revelation, Revelation 13. Yesterday, I was just enjoying reading this over and over and over again. It reminded me of so many things. It opened so many things up about this unique scenario where he doesn't have a God, but he has a God. I'll show you what I mean. In Revelation 13, it tells us that, and, and I'm just going to give you the, the overview. We're not going to go there for the lack of time. It says that Satan, who's symbolized as the great dragon, recruits the aid of two human beings, and uh, they're symbolized as beasts. And he recruits them in order to execute his plan on the earth. There are two beasts. First beast is from the sea. That represents the Antichrist. The second beast is from the land. It represents the false prophet who leads a religious institution in the last days that enforces the worship of the Antichrist. All right. Now, you might even see it already. So you have the dragon, right? That's Satan. And then you have the sea beast. That's the Antichrist. And then you have the lamb beast, and that's the false prophet. Together, they comprise a counterfeit trinity. Functioning like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What did Satan say when he rebelled against the Most High? What did he say? I will be like the Most High. The Most High is a triune God. So, let's make some comparisons. So Satan, just like the Father sends the Son to fulfill His plan, Satan will send the Antichrist to fulfill His plan. The Antichrist, just like the Son fulfills the Father's plan, will fulfill the plan of Satan. The false prophet, just like the Spirit directs people to worship the Son, will direct people to worship the Antichrist. And therefore, the Antichrist is not only ultimately against Christ, but against Christ by being a counterfeit of Christ, a false Christ, a false Messiah, claiming to be God, calling for worship, and acting as if he is sovereign over humanity. Now, Jesus Christ is the true king. The Antichrist is the counterfeit king. And counterfeits imitate the real. So just like the true king, it goes all the way back, just like the true king came into this world virtually unnoticed. Bethlehem, manger, no fanfare, nobody knew, just a few angels, shepherds, that's it. Came in and, and was virtually unnoticed for what? For 30 years. So too, the Antichrist will start small, and be almost unnoticed. That's why he's called the little horn of Daniel 7. 
He starts small, inconspicuous. Revelation 13 says he comes, he's the sea beast. The sea means, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, it means humanity, the sea of humanity or the humanity, uh, the group of people. He will just come out of humanity, not from a special family line or anything like that. It'll be inconspicuous, his beginning. But just like the true king became very popular overnight when he began his ministry, right? So also the Antichrist will quickly rise in popularity. Just like the true king received power and authority from the Father, the Antichrist will receive power and authority from Satan, Revelation 13, 2. Just like the true king used that power to do miracles, Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. God anointed him with power. In the same way, Satan will anoint the Antichrist with power. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, to do miracles. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Just like the true king died and was raised from the dead, the Antichrist will seem to die and be resuscitated. He even copies the resurrection. Revelation 13.3 and 12. And the whole world, when this happens, will be just filled with wonder and worship the Antichrist. You know what they're going to sing? They're saying, who is like the beast? Does that sound like a phrase in the Bible? Who is like unto thee? That's what the Israelites sang to God after they crossed the Red Sea and God saved them. They said, who is like unto thee? That's what people are going to sing to the Antichrist. Who is like the beast? And just like the true king will be worshipped by all believers... The Antichrist will be worshipped by all unbelievers. Every unbeliever will worship him. Now this is the most important thing for you to know about the Antichrist. Is that he is a counterfeiter. Counterfeits are deceptions. Counterfeits are deceptions made up of, of lies. Half truths that are lies and full lies that are lies. That's what he does. He weaves it together. That's how the Antichrist will operate. Why is that? Well, because he gets his power from who? The father of lies. It's all going to be lies. And although the Antichrist is not here yet, as far as we know, he may be here already. He may be in that inconspicuous period of his, of his life, ready to come on the scene. We don't know that, but I'm going to assume he's not, okay, just for a second. It doesn't make any difference. His spirit is still here. The spirit of Antichrist is still here. It's still present with us more uh, uh, today, and I think even more so today than it has been in all of my life. And I'm 61. I got saved in 1981. And in my entire walk with Christ, this is the most deceptive time in my life that I have seen. Amen. Deception and, and lies are just at an all-time high in all sectors of our society. You know, every week, another whistleblower reveals we've all been lied to all along. <laughs> Seems that all the institutions and agencies we have trusted in have agendas that are not in the citizenry's best interest. Every government entity known by three letters seems fraught with corruption. The CIA spies on us, the FBI targets Catholics, and the CDC is still pushing mRNA vaccines, which even though there are dozens and dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed studies that say this stuff is dangerous. 
Maybe that's why 69% of all Americans believe the government purposely withholds the truth. It's not just the government, though. It's everything. It's gotten to the point where it's hard to find truth. Turns out Wikipedia really isn't unbiased. <laughs> much of the news is not really a reporting of facts, but the presentation of a narrative that someone wants you to believe. Turns out all Google searches are manipulated, every one of them, to steer you to a certain line of thinking. And AI is only going to make this worse, folks. AI is only going to compound the problem of the lie that serves the lie, 2 Thessalonians. It's only going to compound that. Truth is going to be, as it was under Antiochus, thrown to the ground by the Antichrist. We see the, the semblance of that, the coming of that right now. Lies will be presented as truth over and over and over again so that people just believe a lie. I said it's going to get worse with AI. I'll give you an example. Personal example. I think it was about six weeks ago or so, I got a call from my father. And uh, he asked me if Eric was okay. And I said, yeah. That's my son. Why? He said, well, I just got a call from a lawyer. And uh, this lawyer was uh, the, 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 the father of one of Eric's friends, uh, at the college that he went to. He had all that information. And he was calling because Eric had been arrested. And hold on. And he needed some bail money for whatever it was he was arrested for. And he didn't want to call his wife because there was another woman in the car with him when he was arrested and her daughter. And he didn't want his wife to find out, so he called his grandfather to see if he could get a little bit of money. This was like one grandfather talking to another. It was so convincing. So my dad said, took the information down, kind of weird, this is weird, this is weird, but he wrote a couple. And then he said, I'd, you know, he has to talk to Eric. So Eric got on the phone. It was Eric. Was there? It was Eric's voice. It was Eric's attributes. It was the words he used when he talks with his grandfather. <laughs> the stuff's coming. And, uh, you know, he said, Grandpa, I'm sorry. You know, I, I messed up. It, it was just like what he would say. And you know the end of the story, right? Eric's fine, nothing's wrong. That's all AI generated. All of it. All of it. You know, there's nothing wrong with technology. It's technology in the hands of sinners. So it will always destroy. The internet will always destroy. It can be used for good, but mostly bad. AI, same thing. But it's gonna, it, there's a whole new world coming where you think it's hard to tell the truth from a lie right now. It is going to be nearly impossible with AI. Because what it was is basically this. A lie presented as something that seemed so true, sounded true, everything was true about it, but it was a lie. The world wants you to believe it's lies. 
like abortion is health care. No, it's murder. Transgenderism is normal. No, no, it's rebellion against the design of God. Universal income is the solution to poverty. No, unless you're disabled, if you don't work, you don't eat. This is tr that's the truth. So these lies, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more, are simply uh, presented by the powers that be, driven by the principalities and powers behind them in heavenly places, to, to, to present a narrative that you are supposed to believe, to line up. And it's always been this way. You just never knew it. You never knew how bad it was. Now it's like the curtain is drawn. And what's unfortunate is, as people see the curtain drawn, you know what they do? They do this. They pull it back down together and say, I don't want to live in that world, so I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. And I'm just going to shield myself from any information that might expose this great lie that's a precursor to the Antichrist. Because nobody wants to live in a world where there is no objective truth. That world is just too shaky and unstable. And so let's just deny it. But it is the world we live in, folks. And certainly there are people fighting to expose the lie in every sector of our society, but, you know, it's a David and Goliath kind of battle. Here, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there's only one truth that you can rely on. That's God's Word. Jesus, Jesus said this. He said in His prayer to the Father, John 17, Your Word is is truth. And if we're going to be faithful disciples in the last days, now more than ever, we need to people who know the truth of the Word, know it deep, and use that as a filter to filter everything that's coming at us from our culture so we can detect truth, lie, truth, lie. Why? Because we're so filled with the Word of God. And that's exactly what the angel said to Daniel earlier. He said this about people who would be able to withstand and stand strong in the, in the spirit of Antichrist. He said, the people who know their God will stand firm and prevail. How do you know your God? You know His Word. Amen? All right. Back to the Antichrist. Even though, so here we are, Antichrist. Even though His arrival, His power, His authority, His miracles, His resuscitation, His enthronement, uh, will, be, will deceptively imitate the true king. He'll not be embraced forever, and he'll have to resort to force to bring about his counterfeit kingdom, which will come to an end. Point four, he will come to an end. Here's how it happens, verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. Now, it, it might be helpful to notice at this point that Old Testament prophets always describe future events and people and places in the context of the period they lived in. So chariots and cavalry might be what? Tanks or some type of future military vehicle that's not even been invented yet. Also, the great fleet of ships indicates the Antichrist's attack from the Mediterranean, so he is at this time in Israel. Apparently, the kings of the north and the south attack him in response to the Antichrist breaking a peace treaty 
that he had brokered with Israel and other nations. We learned about that in Daniel 9. And he's going to do that halfway through the tribulation, that seven-year tribulation. And he does it with what? The abomination that causes desolation. He will end the daily Jewish sacrifices at the temple, set up a statue of himself to be worshipped in that place. And that means by the middle of the tribulation, there must be two things in place. A rebuilt temple and a peace treaty. Because if he's going to put an end to the Jewish sacrifices, there must be a place to make them the temple in Jerusalem right now. It's the Dome of the Rock. It belongs to the, the Muslims. So something big got to change there, right? You know they're not going to move that thing easy, right? But the second thing has got to be a peace treaty in, in place. Kind of something like the Abraham Accords on steroids. Okay? <laughs> But the peace treaty means what? Peace treaty means there has to be events that require a peace treaty, like a what? Multi-regional war? Technically, there have been 17 conflicts since Israel became a nation in 1948. Several of those are considered wars. The question with every one of these conflicts and wars that Christians, especially those into prophecy, ask, is this the war that precedes the peace treaty brokered by the Antichrist? I'm going to give you the answer to that. No. Not yet. We're close, but we're not there yet. At some point now, in the tribulation, people will begin to change their minds about the Antichrist to the point again where he's attacked. Attacked from the north, attacked from the south. And the Antichrist will, will respond with an incredible display of power, a counterattack, and this will be setting the stage for the last great battle of the end called Armageddon. Verse 40, he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He'll also invade the beautiful land. Now, verses 41 through 43 go on to foretell the Antichrist invasion of the south. That's basically all of northeastern Africa, the continent. And apparently why he's doing that, news comes from the east and from the north that others are joining in the attack against him. Verse 44, but reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. Who are the many? Probably the Jews in Jerusalem. Just like Antiochus Epiphanes. Just like he raged on the Jews, the Antichrist is, is the fulfillment of the type. He's the anti-type. He'll vent his fury on Jerusalem because it represents God, God's covenant, God's people, and by extension, God's plan of salvation for the human race. In one, here's the last thing, in one last great deception. This is in Revelation 16. He'll convince the nations that are attacking him as well as convince all the other nations to come to Israel to war against Israel and Israel's God. That's the battle of Armageddon. It says in verse 45, the Antichrist will pitch his royal tents between the seas. What seas? Mediterranean and dead. What's between those two? Jerusalem. And it goes on to say, at the beautiful holy mountain. What's that mountain? That is the mountain where Jerusalem is and where the temple is, the highest place in Jerusalem. So basically, that's, that's where it all ends for him. Notice, he will come to an end and no one will help him. Rather anticlimactic finish, wouldn't you say? Scripture teaches us the Lord Jesus Christ at that moment will, will descend on the Mount of Olives adjacent to the eastern gate of the Temple Mount and will defeat the Antichrist and all those armies who came against Israel in the battle of Armageddon. And he'll do so, he'll do so with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming, 2 Thessalonians 
Not with anything but just his presence. Boom. It's done. You know, it always talks about, you know, the, the saints coming back with him, you know, riding with him. We don't do any battle. We're not the battlers. No, he's the king. He does it. We share in his victory. Just with the word of his mouth, it's done. Revelation 19 gives us more detail. I love this passage. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Just like the Second Thessalonians. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I'm going to come back to that, but there is a sense of ultimate victory when you read these verses, that, that it does something in you. But before I get to that, he's going to do something else here. Not only is he going to defeat the Antichrist and all those nations that gathered up against him, he's going to rescue the Jewish people in Jerusalem who will finally believe on their Messiah. Finally. After all of that. They finally will. Scripture says in Romans 11, the full number of Gentiles will have been brought in. The full number will have been brought in. And this last generation of Jews, all of them, will be saved. Romans 11.25 And on that day, Zechariah 12, when the, when the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem, God says, an immovable rock for all the nations. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look at me, the one they pierced. Now, how accurate can you get? The one they, and they will mourn. Why? In repentance. How could we not have seen that? And on that day, a fountain will be opened up in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And they will belong with the Lord forever and with us. All right. A couple applications and we'll, we'll got one more thing to do today. What should we do here? Well, I think we need to rest in that victory. I, I think we need to rest in the promise of final victory because it it seems like that's is very elusive right now, the way things are happening. But there is a final victory that is coming, a final salvation, a final day of justice when every wrong will be made right. And it, we need to let that settle deep in our, our heart and strengthen our faith in Christ. In John's Gospel, he records Jesus saying these words about final victory. He said, In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart and why I have overcome the world. This is the promise of final victory. Concerning those words, the same John 
years later in his first letter wrote this, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Our faith in what? In the gospel. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We are following the ultimate winner. So, as we fight our good fight of faith in this life, we need to do so from a place of resting in His final victory. He wins. And His victory is our victory. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. One more thing. Rest in His final victory, number two. Pursue knowing God through knowing Scripture. More than anything else, Scripture gives us discernment and power to detect and demolish the lies of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those strongholds? We destroy arguments. They're arguments. They're philosophies. They're thinking. They're narratives that are being pumped at us all the time. The Word of God does what to those? Destroys them. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. But for Scripture to work like that, we need to be immersed in it. Just immersed. Just, you know, Colossians, I quoted it earlier, 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word richly there is the word pelusios in the Greek, and it's where we get a very unknown word. You might know it. Plutocrat. Plutocrat is someone so rich that his main job is just giving away his money. It means to be filthy rich. Applied to Colossians 3.16. Be filthy rich in the Word. Psalmist says what? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not believe a stupid narrative. <laughs> Psalm 1 ends it. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree. Because he does that, he's like a tree by streams of water. That's a tree that's doing good. Which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, whatever he does, prospers. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Next week, we're going to um, finish out, I believe, Daniel 12. We'll see. I can't make any promises. I decided to slow it down a little bit. So I hope you're okay with that. Instead of plowing through a chapter at a time, forgive me.